Well, I'm told this morning that President Biden is <clears throat> filling the pulpit in Martin Luther King Jr.'s old pulpit. So I have maybe a little competition, but that's okay. Our eyes are on the prize and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, one of the verses that we are well familiar with, and it's bringing us in into the new year from our time at Christmas is John 8, 12. And it's a verse that we're now very familiar with, where Jesus publicly proclaims in the temple, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And it's with these words, Jesus reveals exactly who he is, and he reveals exactly why he has come. Without confusion or ambiguity or hiddenness, it is explicitly clear. He is the Lord, the one who has led the children of Israel through the wilderness in the Old Testament. He is the holy and eternal Son of God. He is the promised Messiah who has come to personally lead his people out of the darkness of sin and death and into the light of his life and his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. Now from Genesis to Revelation, brothers and sisters, this is the good news. And for a world that is dying in its sin, this is indeed good news. For a world that thinks it's doing well and is successful and is smart and wealthy and able and powerful, this is kind of whatever. And it raises the question, as Jesus says this, and we hear it today, not in a temple, but in a church in America, where most of us are well-educated with good jobs and comfortable lives, and we don't have bombs raining down us like they do in the Ukraine, and we're not dealing with hunger or famine, and most of us, really, racial injustice is not a big deal for us. The question comes, so what? So what? What difference does this make and what difference does this good news make and what difference does it make who Jesus is what difference does it make in your life and mine and what difference does it make in our church well the implication of Jesus words is that without him and without following him in our work in our home in our relationships we are simply walking in the same darkness that has corrupted and destroyed and ravaged human beings since the beginning of time. We're walking in darkness in our homes without him. We're walking in darkness in our work without him. We are walking in darkness in our relationships without him. But with him, Regardless of where we are, whether we're in Pereira, Colombia, or we're here in Silicon Valley, we have the light of the world. 
And it raises this question in our homes, in our relationships, in our church, in our worship, in our ministries. Are we following Jesus? Are we walking in his light or are we walking in the darkness? Are we living the light? And that, brothers and sisters, is our theme for this coming year. As we walk through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is explaining what it means to live the light of his life. And he points out, too, why it is so critical and important, not just for ourselves, but for the world around us. Can I have my next slide, please? Thanks. This is going to be our theme and our focus for this coming year, and it is, for Jesus' disciples, he makes it incredibly personal. This is not some theoretical pie in the sky. This is for every aspect of their lives. Brothers and sisters, Jesus did not come and give his life on the cross so that we might live the light of his life one day a week, in one part of our lives, or in one ministry. The good news of God's word is that Jesus came and he died and he rose again so that sinners like you and I could live and enjoy the light of his life in every aspect of our lives. Now that's a struggle, brothers and sisters. We have parts of our lives that we enjoy and we have parts of our lives that are hard. And our proclivity or tendency is to maximize those parts that we enjoy and to minimize those parts that are hard and difficult and uncomfortable. And the same is true, quite frankly, with the people in our lives. Maximize the time with the people we enjoy, minimize the time with those who kind of rub us the wrong way. But brothers and sisters, we see that Jesus has come to bring the entirety of our lives into the light. And he's done it, not just for us, but he's done it for those difficult people in our lives and the difficult parts of our lives and the difficult portions of the world that in love he came to bring the good news of God's word. And so it brings us this morning back to Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, because it's here in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus, with meticulous detail, rolls out for his disciples, those who have repented of their lives of sin, and they've left everything behind to follow Jesus. In Matthew 5 through 7, it's to these disciples that Jesus begins to explain what it means to live the light. And he's had it written for us by Matthew through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And these God-breathed words are left for us, brothers and sisters, so that we too, as disciples of Jesus, and as a alleged church of Jesus, an ecclesia gathering, so that we too might live the light in exactly the same way the disciples did 2,000 years ago. And as we come this morning to the end of the Beatitudes, to Matthew 5, 13 through 16, Jesus shows his disciples and us that following him begins with a new God-given life, a Beatitude life that, like Jesus, is salt and light in a dark and dying world. 
And to live the light, brothers and sisters, is about being salt and light just like Jesus. This is what sets us apart from the rest of the world. This is what has an impact and an influence in our places of work, our relationships, our homes, our families. It's not how great we are at preaching. It is not how much education we have. It's not how much money we give. Brothers and sisters, living the light is about Christ in us and with us and for us wherever we go and wherever he calls us to go. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Matthew 5, and we'll read verses 1 through 16, and our focus this morning is really going to be on verse 13. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you whenever others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, I want you to think for a moment as we enter into 2023. What is it that sets your life apart from everyone else? In a church, we list a list of distinctives. What sets our church apart? In your life, what are the distinctives? What are the things that people in your place of work look at and say, this person is different from the rest? Is it the color of your skin? Is it your education? Is it your career? Is it your choice of gender or politics or pastors? If you're a Warriors fan, and I know a few. It's the team you cheer for, and it's the gear you wear. And interestingly enough, it's, same, it's the same thing for most religions. The gear you wear and the team you cheer for. Whether you're an Orthodox Jew, a Muslim, or a Catholic priest, or none. It's your headgear and your garb, and the team you cheer for that sets you apart. 
and the places that you attend on a regular basis. We've just swapped out traditional religions for our sports teams. But according to Jesus, what sets apart his followers is not their choice of headgear or seminaries. It's God's gift of a new heart and a life that is blessed by God, but is cursed by the world. Those are the Beatitudes that we just read. A life that is blessed by God, but it's cursed and hated and opposed by the world. A beatitude life that is poor in spirit, that mourns and grieves over sin, that is meek, that hungers and thirsts for righteousness, that is merciful and pure in heart, and that calls sinners to repent and make peace with God regardless of the personal cost. And if it sounds like Jesus, brothers and sisters, it's because this is his life. And this is what sets Jesus' followers apart from the world. And this is what brings ridicule and persecution from the world. Why? Because, brothers and sisters, this is a life from inside and out that belongs entirely to Jesus and not the world. And, brothers and sisters, it just kind of amazes me at times. It's what was the life that Jesus was supposed to give us here in America? When we think about it, all the things, our expectations and our desires, in our relationships, in our marriages, in our jobs, our expectations and desires, the places of discouragement and disappointment, where we get discouraged and disappointed because things don't work out the way we had hoped or desired. And that includes ministry as well. And I'll look at myself and my own heart and say, what did I expect? What did Jesus come to bring? Did he come to bring the megachurch? Did he come to bring the CEO position, either in the corporation or the church? Who is the Jesus who we love and who we've fallen in love with? Well, the Jesus who loves us, he came to give us the life that he loves. And that is the life of his Father in heaven. That is his life. It is the life of the Spirit. This is the life that he's come to give. And what does it look like? Well, it looks like that beatitude life, brothers and sisters. A life of repentance and faith and the one who came to give his life for us, a life that belongs entirely to him and not to the world. And that's what makes it good news. And this brings us to our first point this morning. Living the light is about living a life that belongs entirely to Christ and not the world. It's about living a life that belongs entirely to Christ and not the world. Now, it's worth noting as Jesus brings us to the end of the Beatitudes and the blessings of his kingdom life in verse 11. He begins to apply these blessings and he begins to make these blessings very personal and very real for his disciples here and now in this life. Yes, there is a blessing that comes when he is coming again as king 
and when we stand with him at the end of time. But there is a blessing that begins now, and he begins to make this very, very personal. Verse 11, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. And Jesus uses this personal pronoun, you, four times. And then with the words, on my account, or on account of me, Jesus takes complete ownership, not only of this life, but the world's reaction and what the world wants to do to this life. He takes complete responsibility and control for it all. This, brothers and sisters, is a kingdom life that from beginning to end, including the trials and the tribulations and the challenges and the persecutions. This is a life that comes from Christ. This is a life that belongs to Christ. This is a life that is because of Christ. From beginning to end, it is his life in them that sets his disciples apart and makes them blessed by God and cursed by the world. On this, brothers and sisters, Believe it or not, for sinners who have had enough of their sin in this world, this is good news. Because with these Beatitudes, Jesus makes it clear the life he has come to give, discipleship life, following Jesus, kingdom life, church life, it's not a hobby or a game. It's not about buying a jersey or a hat or a ticket to watch and cheer for our favorite team or pastor. And this is not a religious program to build a community and a movement or a legacy for us to be part of and to feel validated that we're on the right side. This, brothers and sisters, is a God-given life of faith that brings us out of the darkness and brings us into the light of God's life and love. How? By uniting us with the light and life of Christ, by making us like him in every aspect of our lives, in our marriages, our parenting, and in our employment and places of work, like Jesus. And this, brothers and sisters, is what Scripture calls salvation. Salvation. The idea of salvation is you are being delivered from the wrath of God against sin, and you are being delivered from your life of sin so that you can come into the kingdom and live with the king and live like the king. That, brothers and sisters, is deliverance told you before, I've ministered to those who had past histories of substance abuse. And the relief and the peace that they have to be done with that past life, whatever the cost. And whatever sacrifice and whatever lifestyle they give up, gave up the freedom that comes from being separate and distant from a life that seemed pleasurable at the beginning but destroyed them and every relationship they had in the end. But brothers 
And sisters, the gospel is so much more than an AA program of saying, I'm an addict, I'm an addict, I'm an addict for the rest of my life. Because of Jesus, we are new creations in Christ. We are new people. God has made us into something completely different. He's given us a life that belongs to him entirely. And this, brothers and sisters, is a supernatural work of God that transforms us and changes who we are and what we do from inside out. And in every aspect of our lives, step by step, as we're sanctified, Jesus demonstrates to the world outside, they don't belong to you, they belong to me. And this, brothers and sisters, is why the world hates this life. It's because the world owns us no longer. And it's not unlike the resentment and hate that slave owners have towards their former slaves who are now free. And this is why Jesus concludes the Beatitudes in the second part of verse 11 with the command, rejoice and be glad. Rejoice and be glad. Why? He says, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Who were the prophets? We tend to think of the prophets in the Old Testament as the miracle workers and the fortune tellers and the ones who could tell the future. But that's not primarily what the prophets were. The prophets were people of God who were chosen to be the Lord's spokesmen and spokeswomen. Moses, Miriam, Deborah, Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, John the Baptist. Men and women who were chosen by the Lord to live uncompromising lives that belonged entirely to the Lord during times when the people of Israel had compromised and gone the way of the world. Men and women chosen by the Lord to belong to him entirely and to be visible demonstrations of the life and love of the God who had saved them. Lives that proclaimed the Lord's message of repentance and faith in him to lost sheep who had gone astray. And how did they carry out this task? As the spokesmen and women of the Lord, and if you'll recall the life that Isaiah was called to, if you'll recall the life that Jeremiah was called to, single for the entirety of his life, to demonstrate to Israel how life had been cut off. They lived this life by being rich and famous and having an influence, by creating a huge gathering in a huge mega church with big screens like I have behind me. They did so by being filled with the spirit and the word of the Lord. They did so by being filled with the light and life of God. And is it any surprise, brothers and sisters, as you go and read and look at the lives of all those prophets, how much their lives looked like the Beatitudes. Poor in spirit, meek, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, 
pure in heart, peacemakers who boldly proclaimed and called people to be at peace with God and to repent of their sin and place their faith in the only one who could give them salvation. And according to Jesus, what separates a part what sets apart, excuse me, a true disciple, a follower, a child of Christ, it's the very same thing. It's his spirit and it's his word. It's his light and his life. And it begs the question of each one of us, brothers and sisters, what is it that fills your life? Or maybe a harder question is who or what do you belong to? Do you belong to your work? Do you belong to your family? Do you belong to your education? Do you belong to your race? Do you belong to your politics? What sets apart God's children is this beatitude life, a life that belongs to him. Can the world see it, brothers and sisters? Well, the world needs it. And the world needs it, as Jesus shows, because this life that is blessed by God was given to be a blessing to a world that's dying in its sin. And this brings us to our second point this morning. Living the light is about living a life that blesses others with Christ. Living the light is about living a life that blesses others with Christ. This is what being salt and light, brothers and sisters, is all about. The God we worship the God who created and saved us is not a cheap and miserly and self-serving curmudgeon who hoards his blessing and gifts and just gives it to superstar Christians and special saints. The testimony of Christmas and the cross is he is a gracious and generous God who has blessed the least among us. This is what Paul says, and he writes to the Corinthians who are getting arrogant and prideful in their knowledge and in their charismatic gifts. He says, and he reminds them, you know, how many of you were really smart and gifted and rich and wealthy and influential? God's love and the testimony of the gospel of a child coming in a manger and the Son of God being crucified on the cross. It's a testimony of God's generosity and grace to the least among us, giving to us what is most sacred and precious to himself, the life and love of his son, Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, if that's God's best, what is our best? And how dare we belittle it with an enamorment of large buildings and large sums of money and a focus on how talented and great and how much we do for the name of Christ. From the beginning, the Lord God's original purpose and plan for his children is that the first man and woman would be blessed so that they in turn could bless the rest of creation. How? United with God and one another. But instead, they selfishly chose the lies and curse of sin rather than the blessing of God. 
But as we walk through the Old Testament, the good news of God's word is that our sin cannot stop the purposes and plans of God. God's purpose and plan for each one of you, brothers and sisters, is that you would be a blessing through his blessing in your life. But what kind of blessing? Well, as we go to Genesis chapter 12, we see that the Lord graciously calls a cursed and godless idolater named Abram. And he calls him to follow him by faith. And his promise of salvation begins with a blessing. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Genesis 12, verse 2. This is worth noting and looking at carefully. The Lord God, as he calls Abram, who comes from a family of idolaters, he says, and I will make of you a great nation. This is after he calls Abram to leave behind everything that he has, his family, everything that gives security in the ancient Near East, to go to a land that he did not know. And he says, verse 2, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be what? A blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And how exactly did the Lord God fulfill this promise? He did it by bringing Abram into a new life of selfless faith and obedience to the word of God. He did it by bringing Abram, if you walk through it, into a beatitude life. Abram didn't know where he was going until God told him to go. Abram had no heir or descendant. His wife was too old. Abram was a joke to the rest of the ancient Near East community as he wandered after a God that the others could not see while they all had their household idols. And it's through this beatitude life that God gives Abram and blesses him with a son of promise named Isaac. And it's then through the line of this son named Isaac that the ultimate son of promise, Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the eternal and holy son of God, comes into the world to save his people from their sin. And it's in this way, Abraham, living a life of faith in the Lord, becomes what Adam and Eve failed to be, a blessing to all the families of the earth. Brothers and sisters, our lives will either be a curse without God like Adam and Eve or a blessing with God like Abraham. And we're tempted to think like the world that unless we are talented, unless we're educated, unless we're successful and rich, we have nothing to offer, we have no position to speak, and we have no position to bless others in our place of work or wherever else. Brothers and sisters, how often do we look at ourselves, our others, or ministry in this way? And how often do we set the same expectations that the world has for power and influence on ourselves, on our spouses, in our marriages, in our families, on our children?
the same way the woman at the well in John chapter 4 looked at a tired and thirsty Jesus. She looked at him as a needy nuisance. He didn't even have something to pull water from the well. And yet through the Beatitudes, Jesus shows his disciples and us what he later shows the woman at the well, that what sets apart the life he gives are not the whistles and bells of the world. It's this life's unique ability to give what the world does not have but desperately needs, the life and the love of Christ a life and a love that is humble, that is meek, that is merciful, that is pure in heart, and that brings forgiveness and peace with God through repentance and faith in Christ. Singles, let me ask you, what do you want to be married to? What are the things that you find attractive and say, I'll go out on the second date with this person? Is there education, job, or career? The family they come from? What is it that is going to give you love, joy, peace, and happiness that does not end but grows a life that gives life? Do we consider godliness and a life like Christ? And do we see with the eyes of faith rather than the eyes of the world? Brothers and sisters, the greatest gift and blessing God has ever given the world is the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. And the greatest blessing and gift you will ever give your spouse, your children, this church, and the world. It's not your talents, it's not your ability, it's not your wealth. It's the blessing and gift of the life and love of Jesus Christ. That's ministry 101, brothers and sisters, and if we don't learn that, we're dead in the water forever afterwards, no matter how big or great we get. You can't love and give what you do not truly love and live. Anything else, brothers and sisters, is a lie. And this brings us to our final point for the morning. Living the light is about being salt and light like Jesus. Living the light is about being salt and light like Jesus. In the history of the church, the way Christians have struggled to deal with a difficult world and the difficulties of the world, it tends to be we either try and run and hide and get away from the world, or we try and compromise and control and influence the world. It goes from one extreme to the other. So we go from monasteries on the one hand, okay, and separating completely and running to the hills and living lives that are completely cut off and separate, Christian movies, Christian TV, Christian music, Christian clubs, Christian sports, Christian this, that, and the other thing. Christian in name only, but it's all Christian, and we try and provide this alternate universe for our children and our families, so we're living this evangelical monastic life. Or we swing to the other extreme. How can we have success like the world in our churches and 
in our ministries and all the rest. And how can we be that way? And it goes from one of two, those two extremes. And of course, there's a continuum in between. And we see so often what attracts us during when times are hard. It's looking for power and influence. It's looking for strength in numbers. It looks for strength and success. But when Jesus comes and says, you're the salt and you're the light of the earth, one of the points I believe he's making is that what we really need, especially when the world is hard, is what God has already given us in him. It's the power and influence of a life like Jesus. And as you go through the history of missions and you go through the history of the church, those who had the greatest impact, the greatest influence, were men and women whose lives were transformed by the gospel. Many who were not important, many who maybe we've never heard of, but nonetheless, significant impact because of their faithfulness and their confidence that what was of value was the life of Christ, what they already have. And I think of the pastor who no one knows his name. In fact, he was a layperson who had to fill the pulpit during a snowstorm when most of the congregation would, did not show up when Charles Spurgeon, as a teenager, came through those doors. If we measured by today's standard, that layperson who had to fill the pulpit and go through the text would have been discouraged and thought, by our expectations, I'm a failure. Look how many people are here from a snowstorm. And yet he was faithful. And Charles Spurgeon can't even remember his name. And yet through him, the Lord used the Spirit of God and the Word of God and the text that morning through a simple man who probably had never been to seminary to save Charles Spurgeon and bring Charles Spurgeon into the kingdom and to use Charles Spurgeon and the ministry not for Charles Spurgeon but for the sake of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, do we think of the interactions that we have in our place of work with the stranger in the parking lot, with the people we cross or interact with, and do we think, I can't save them unless I've been to seminary, or do we think, Christ in me, the power of salvation for the greatest of sinners? And so to his disciples who are probably already undergoing persecution, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, in verse 13. And as Sinclair Ferguson points out, this is not a command. He's not telling them, you better be something special. It's a statement of fact. Jesus is not urging his disciples to become something they are not. He is telling them what they already are as kingdom people. And guess what? The disciples had just begun. And brothers and sisters, this is good news. This is Christ's remedy for the difficulties of this world. It is to live and be what God has already made us to be in Christ. Are we perfect? No, we're not. Do we have Christ? Yes, we do. 
and in his righteousness, not mine, his perfection, his goodness, his grace, there is salvation for the worst of sinners. You are the salt of the earth. And anyone who has ever worked in a hospital or an emergency room and given a patient an intravenous of normal saline, you appreciate how small yet how essential salt is for life. And it's always been true. During the Roman Empire, soldiers' wages included a handful of salt. And this is where we get the word salary from, from the Latin word sal for salt. And roads were built in the Roman Empire in order to transport salt, this essential commodity, throughout the entirety of the empire. Why? All of Rome's engineering put at the disposal to create a transportation system to move salt from one part of the empire to another. Why? Because in the ancient world, salt was essential for life because it purified, it preserved, and it seasoned. It killed bacteria, it cleansed and cured wounds, and then in the absence of refrigeration, it prevented food from rotting, and it provided for the nation and for the empire the basic necessities of life. In a fallen and hostile and rotting world, Salt was one of God's chosen symbols and illustration of the gift and blessing of his holy life and love. A life and love that was essential. A life and love that was faithful and did not fail. A life and a love that was enduring. A life and love that was saving, sanctifying, even as it purified and preserved and seasoned what would otherwise rot and decay unless it was covered, unless it was filled, and unless it was penetrated with salt. It served as a reminder to God's people of their desperate need to be covered and filled with God's holy life and love. And without it, there was nothing but death and decay. And so the Lord, in his word and in the Old Testament, makes salt an essential part of his old covenant worship. If you have your Bibles, look at Exodus 30, 35. The Lord is giving instruction for the old covenant worship, and nothing except what is holy can be used. And he says in Exodus 30, 35, he says, And make an incense blended as by the perfumer, seasoned with salt pure and holy, pure and holy. And then if you go a little bit further, Leviticus 2.13. Leviticus 2.13. He says, You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. And I believe one of the points the Lord is making here is about faithfulness, faithfulness to the Lord, but also what is it that makes our worship acceptable to the Lord? Is it the amount of money we put in the offering plate? It is, is it how excellent we sing? Is it how talented and gifted we are? 
Well, I believe one of the points the Lord is making is without his holy life and love, our offerings are worthless. They're a charade and a joke. But with his life and his love, like the tax collector who pounces his chest in the temple, the illustration that Jesus gives, that man goes home justified, while the Pharisee who rejoices and boasts of all that he's done for God stands condemned before the Lord. And finally, Numbers 18, 19. All the holy contributions that the people of Israel present to the Lord, I give to you, he's talking about the priests, and to your sons and daughters with you as a perpetual due. It is a covenant of salt forever before the Lord for you and for your offspring with you. What is it that saves? What is it that sanctifies? What is it that sustains and sets apart the people of God and the priests of God? Brothers and sisters, it's nothing less than the life and love of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And when it is the life and love of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who enters to serve the most humblest of ministries, there is Christ and there is the greatest gift in the world. And so when Jesus says to his disciples, you are the salt of the earth, he's telling them, because of me, because of my life in you, you are no longer dirt that defiles. Like me, you are God's blessing and gift of a holy life and love. You are a beatitude life and love that purifies and preserves and seasons a rotting and dying world. My life in you is what overcomes the evil of the world. And this is why Jesus prays for his disciples in John 17, that they would be in the world, but not of the world, not in some monastery locked up in some other place, not hiding in a Christian bubble. And their calling is to be like their king, like Jesus, bringing the gospel life by living the gospel life. And this is why Jesus, in verse 13b, he warns, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Salt cannot change what it is, but in the ancient world, the way it would lose its taste is by being contaminated or diluted. The word for losing its taste in the Greek refers to becoming dull or ineffective. It comes from the verb morano, from which we get the word moron. The idea is slow, dull, sluggish, ineffective, impotent, unable to make a point. Brothers and sisters, how do we get numbed out? What makes us dull and ineffective? Well, we've experienced so, so often over the Christmas holidays, don't we? We have vacation. We have a lot of things that are going on. As I said, we should celebrate those things. But bit by bit by bit, our time in the Word becomes less and less. We get separated from the family of God because we're traveling. We get busy with many other things. And we come back and we're surprised that we find that we're a little bit sluggish or slow, that our time in the Word does not have a bite, 
that we're not invigorated or we're not connected. Or we come in and things get a little uncomfortable. They get salty. And we wonder, ooh, what's this all about? And we think the problem is everywhere else. But brothers and sisters, salt loses its saltiness, its effectiveness when it gets filled with dirt or when it gets separated. And suddenly we're a tiny grain of salt rather than the community of salt that we're called to be. And Jesus makes the point at this point, when you become so diluted with the things of the world, you become worthless. And just like the world, you're dirt now. Worthy of no more than being trampled on. Worthless. But with Christ, with one another, without the world filling us and saturating us, but being in the world, Christ comes and he saves and he sanctifies any seasons. And so, brothers and sisters, as we get ready for the new year, and we think about what it means to live the light, our hope and our value, it begins, brothers and sisters, not with how messy our lives are. It begins with how great our Savior is. Do we really believe that? Living the light, brothers and sisters, it begins with faith. It begins with a faith and confidence that what God's word says is true and the greatest treasure and hope and wonder is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And as I minister to my boys and they wrestle with this because they don't completely see it and it's a bit uncomfortable and it looks different than what they're learning in the public school, I have to remind them <clears throat> that the truth of God's word is not based on what we feel or we think or we understand in our sinful hearts. The truth of God's word is based on the character of God himself. And it remains true whether we see it, feel it, or whether we can intellectually understand it. And we see that the greatest remedy and blessing that we need, brothers and sisters, the Lord has already given us in his son. And so we have to ask ourselves too, what is it that in the new year we need to be covered with? What is it that we need to be filled with? What is it that needs to penetrate our hearts and souls. And this is why Jesus, in John 17, when he prays for his disciples before he's about to leave them and he's going to be crucified and they're going to be on their own, he prays that they would be sanctified with the truth. Your word is truth, that they would be cleaned. And before he leaves, in John 13, he washes their feet and he tells them they're to do this for one another. And he's speaking metaphorically and illustrating. He says, you're already clean. Your whole body doesn't need to be clean. But as you walk and you go and you fulfill the great commission, the calling, and you go into the world to be salt and light in the world, you will be contaminated. Dirt will cover you. But my word will wash you and you are to wash one another with my word, the good news of the gospel. And it's why the apostle Paul in Colossians exhorts the Colossians that their speech is to be gracious at all times your speech is to always be gracious what comes out of your mouth that it's to impart grace seasoned with salt and i believe he's making reference to the gospel the good news of who jesus is brothers and sisters how often do we need 
to be covered by the life and love of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. When we're discouraged and life is not going the way we'd hoped or expected, how often do we consider that the real remedy is being covered by the life and love of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to be filled with his word, because faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ, and to be with the people of God at those moments rather than being alone or isolated, and to be poured into by people who maybe might get a little salty with us. I recall as a physician when people used to come in with wounds that were dirty, and I'd tell the nurse, bring me bottles of normal saline so that I could irrigate, and I would take a syringe and put an 18-bore needle, and I'd, I'd suck up all that saline, and I'd get under the skin, and it would be uncomfortable. And I'd pour in that saline, trying to wash out the dirt, and I knew it irritated, and I knew it hurt, but I would rather get under the skin and to have a wound that would heal rather than a wound that would fester and compromise the whole. Finally, brothers and sisters, be covered with Christ. Be saturated with Christ. Be filled with his spirit and his word. But finally, brothers and sisters, being salt is about hoping in Christ. Where do you place your hope? We do not have to have confidence in ourselves, brothers and sisters, but we need to have every confidence that the greatest blessing and gift that we have received and that we can give is the life and love of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I try and remind my wife and my boys that after Jesus, they're the greatest blessing and gift in my life. I do it regularly because I want them to know and understand what they are. And yet at the same time, I also remind them that they would not be that blessing and gift if it was not for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because without him and without his salvation, we wouldn't be a family, we wouldn't be a marriage, we would have absolutely nothing. So praise God for who he is and praise God for who you are because of who he is. And share that blessing, brothers and sisters, with a world that does not need more money, more intelligence, more education. It still hasn't saved the world. But a world that so desperately needs the life and the love of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, what a Savior you are, what you've done for us, how precious and priceless a treasure you are. Would we cherish you and would the greatest gift that we give to our spouses, our families, and to the world around us, would it be a life that gives your life and love to all men? In your name we pray, amen.